Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ukraine says Russia bombed a children's hospital. The lead starts right now. It was once a place for the most vulnerable babies, children, and mothers. Now a catastrophic scene as desperate Ukrainian families search for loved ones in the wreckage of a horrific airstrike. Then, Vladimir Putin lied repeatedly when it came to invading Ukraine. So can the world trust anything he says about nuclear weapons? Coming up, a closer look inside Putin's arsenal. Plus, with fuel prices in the U.S. soaring above $4 a gallon, is any relief in sight? This hour, one governor says he knows what would help, getting Washington to take a break from taxing gas. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with breaking and horrific news in our world lead. Apocalyptic images coming out of the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol where Ukraine is now accusing Russian forces of bombing a children's and maternity hospital. You can see victims stumbling out of the wreckage in the immediate aftermath of this attack. Local police say at least 17 people were injured. No update yet on how many may have been killed. Earlier today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said there were children trapped under the rubble. To be very clear, this is a military strike on a building full of innocent moms, expectant mothers, children, babies, infants. Mariupol, for that matter, was supposed to be part of a series of humanitarian quarters today, areas where a ceasefire had been agreed to by both the governments of Russia and Ukraine to allow innocent civilians a chance to escape. Just imagine how strong, how devastating a bomb would have to be to leave this giant crater outside the hospital. Let's get straight to CNN's Clarissa Ward, who's in the capital of Kiev. And Clarissa, a university and city building near the hospital were also attacked today. What do we know about these apparent Russian military strikes? So the Ukrainians, Jake, are saying that this was the result of a massive Russian airstrike. And I don't know if you have uh, the image in some of the videos that we're seeing from the scene of the crater, just extraordinarily huge crater uh, that was made by the impact of this bomb. It hit a, a, a sort of hospital complex with a number of different buildings, a teaching facility, as well as a maternity hospital. And you you can see those harrowing images of heavily pregnant women emerging on stretchers, some of them stumbling out on their feet, others carrying babies, the sounds of children screaming and crying after basically every single window was blown in. There's rubble and wreckage everywhere. What we don't have a good sense of yet, though, Jake, is how many people were killed. It appears that the direct impact was just outside of the hospital, but there was a huge amount of uh, damage and destruction to the building itself. Mariupol authorities had said that at least 17 people were injured, but that was an early estimate, and it's still not clear if, as you mentioned, there are possibly bodies in the rubble 
all around this area. We have already heard from President Zelensky, who has come out and called this an atrocity and used this as an opportunity to renew his call to the international community and particularly to NATO to instate some kind of a no-fly zone in Ukraine that would make things like this impossible. He said, I quote, how much longer will the world be continue to be an accomplice to this terror? As you mentioned, Mariupol was supposed to be one of five cities today where there was a humanitarian corridor, where people were finally going to be allowed to receive humanitarian aid, but also to move out safely. They have been pinned down under heavy fighting now, Jake, for more than a week with reportedly no heat, no power, no gas, very little uh, cell phone service and just constant bombardment. Uh, the mayor's office saying they believe more than a 1,000 civilians have been killed in Mariupol, although I do want to emphasize, Jake, we absolutely cannot confirm those numbers. The UN is currently saying that more than 500 civilians have been killed across the entire country. But frankly, when you look at those images and you see those mothers, those expecting mothers in absolute carnage, it is just a reminder that one civilian is too many to die in this conflict, Jake. Larissa, there were a, a host of uh, humanitarian quarters that had been agreed to. Obviously, the one in Mariupol did not hold. Uh, if things are the way that Zelensky says they are, the Russians attacked uh, this maternity hospital. Did the other humanitarian quarters that were agreed to, did they hold? So the ceasefire was supposed to start at 9 this morning and end at 9 p.m. today. I will say that we have heard quite a lot of activity in the skies, quite a lot of loud booms. It is always difficult to know what's incoming and what's outgoing. We also heard Russian jets flying quite low over the city uh, this afternoon. We know that thousands of people, roughly 3,000 people, were able to be evacuated from some of the hardest-hit Kiev suburbs um, of Irpin and also uh, uh, of, of, of Bucha, although according to the mayor of Bucha, some 50 buses holding civilians who were trying to get out uh, of the sort of bombarded area of Barodyanka were stopped by Russian forces. They were not allowed to proceed. So clearly there have been some small windows where civilians have been able to get out uh, and there has been less shelling in some of these areas, but still not approaching what you might call a, an actual ceasefire where people are freely allowed to move out and help can get in to those who need it most, Jake. The question now, I would just add, becomes tomorrow, Foreign Minister, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov meeting with his Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitry Kuleba in Turkey. Will there be another ceasefire announced for tomorrow so that these hundreds of thousands of people across the country who are trapped can finally try to be ferried out to safety, Jake. Clarissa Ward in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you. Please stay safe. Joining us now to discuss, Democratic Congressman David Cicilline of, of Rhode Island. He's on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He visited the Poland-Ukraine border uh, over the weekend with a bipartisan group of, of lawmakers. Congressman, thanks for joining us. President uh, Zelensky is now repeating his call for the U.S. to help institute a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, we need to point out, of course, that a no-fly zone uh, would put U.S. or NATO pilots in the position of direct military confrontations with the Russians, which would almost certainly escalate matters. Does seeing what happened today at that maternity hospital, that children's hospital in Mariupol, change your stance on the U.S. helping to implement a, a no-fly zone in any way? 
Well, I think, first of all, Jake, those images are horrific. This, these are war crimes. These are attacks on children and women and families and residential neighborhoods and children's hospitals. These are war crimes being committed by Vladimir Putin. There is no question about it. I was at the border and saw the refugees fleeing for their lives, mostly women and children. The challenge is we have to do everything we can to support the Ukrainian people in their fight without directly engaging in a way that will escalate this and I encourage Vladimir Putin to use tactical nuclear weapons in a third world war. So I think we are, we've provided over a billion dollars in lethal assistance today. We'll vote to send almost $14 billion in both security assistance and humanitarian assistance. We're working very closely with our NATO allies, our European partners. Everyone is providing the Ukrainians with all that they uh, can to support their fight. Uh, and I think we have to be very uh, careful in ensuring that we're doing this in a way that doesn't escalate the conflict, make it worse for Ukraine, and potentially create the Third World War. So I think that's what the balance is. Um, we also have to look at what the most urgent needs are. Most of the challenge right now, at least up to now, has not been airstrikes. That may, in fact, be a greater challenge later on in this fight. But I think there also our military leaders are prioritizing what they need right now uh, and we'll continue to monitor that and obviously provide whatever assistance we can, as well as our NATO partners, to, to put an end to this carnage. This is a brutal, mm -hmm. unlawful, illegal uh, invasion of a sovereign country, yeah. and Vladimir Putin needs to pay a price for it. So still no, no change of mind on the no-fly zone issue. Um, there's this other if issue um, related in an effort to help Ukraine uh, defend its skies from these atrocities. Poland offered to transfer... Uh, there, Russian-made uh, MiG-29 fighter jets, the Ukrainians are familiar with those, uh, as opposed to with American aircraft, to, to transfer those MiGs to U.S. possession so the U.S. could then transfer them to Ukraine so they could have their own uh, imposed uh, no-fly zone. Moments ago, we just heard from Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby uh, on this issue. Take a listen. But he stressed that we do not support the transfer of additional fighter aircraft to the Ukrainian Air Force at this time and therefore have no desire to see them in our custody, either. The transfer of MiG-29s to Ukraine may be mistaken as escalatory and could result in a significant Russian reaction that might increase the prospects of a military escalation with NATO. Therefore, we also assess the transfer of the MiG-29s to Ukraine to be high risk. So just to break it down, the U.S. position, while we're watching allegedly the Russians bombing this maternity and children's hospital is... No, Zelensky, we're not going to participate in a no-fly zone. And we're not even going to support the transfer to Ukraine by the U.S. For, so that you can have your own no-fly zone. Uh, what's your reaction? Look, I think we all are watching these scenes unfold. As I said, I was just there. We have provided $350 million just in the last two weeks. We'll approve $14 billion today. I think judgments have to be made about the best way to provide that security assistance that doesn't create greater danger for the Ukrainian people. And I'm certain that the judgments that the Ukrainian president is making is being considered by our military leadership. But they're trying to balance how do we avoid a, a more dangerous reaction by Vladimir Putin that will cost more lives in Ukraine, escalate this into a greater conflict. So that's the balance. And those are military leaders that have lots of intelligence, that 
that, that inform that judgment uh, and, you know, continuing to support the Ukrainians in every way that we can. I know those discussions are ongoing about their air defense. I think there's bipartisan support to do everything that we can to support the Ukrainians in a way that doesn't make it worse for them uh, or make it so that the situation on the ground is even more devastating. So I know it's hard to watch. I, I watched it as you did in horror. Um, but again, principally, airstrikes have not been the principal challenge. That may change. And again, I know we're going to do everything we can as the United States to provide assistance, but in a way that doesn't make it worse for the Ukrainians and more dangerous for, for NATO and for our country. Watching these images, what makes anybody sure that Putin's going to not attack NATO countries? I mean, that's the, that's the calculation being made here. We've drawn our lines. We will protect NATO countries. Ukraine is not a NATO country. Therefore, we're not going to engage. We don't want to risk World War III because uh, Putin has nukes and who knows what he'll do. Right. I get, well, all, I get yeah. all that. But, but I mean, he, <clears throat> no, look, he's I mean, killing civilians. I no, mean, like, what look, makes you think he's he, what makes anybody think like, well, he's not going to do that to Poland. He's not no. going to do that to Finland. Well, look, we have a treaty obligation under NATO, under Article 5. So if he does, in fact, do that, we have an obligation uh, to act immediately. And I think, you know, it is very clear that we are making a tremendous effort to support the Ukrainians. As I said, we're going to vote on $14 billion in just a few hours of both security and humanitarian assistance. All of our NATO allies are also pitching in and providing lethal assistance to the Ukrainians and many of our NATO ally, uh, European allies. So this is going to be, you know, a continuing responsibility. And I expect that our military leaders are going to listen very carefully to the Ukrainian military leadership on what they see as their priorities. But again, they're going to have to make judgments about what is urgently needed, what can be done in a way that doesn't make it worse. And these scenes are horrible. Um, they're horrible, and we're going to, we have to do everything we can to put an end to it, but in a way that doesn't actually make it worse in the end for Ukraine or the Ukrainian people. And those are judgments based on intelligence and military strategies uh, that the Pentagon announced today. And we're going to keep pressing to be sure that we're doing everything humanly possible. That's why we went to the region to find out what else we could do as the United States to support the heroic Ukrainian people. You uh, recently went to the Poland-Ukraine border and you say you saw an unspeakable amount of pain and suffering. And, and frankly, those are the ones who got out. Those are the lucky ones. Um, can you talk to our viewers about how dire the situation is there? Yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to describe. It is, you know, thousands and thousands of people crossing the border, mostly women and children. Actually, in nine days, there's one and a half million refugees fleeing Ukraine for their lives. It's basically the clothes on their back, some of them with one suitcase or a bag having just said goodbye to the men in their lives, whether it's their husband or father, because they remain to fight. And it's freezing cold. They have no winter coats, hungry, terrified, and, and fleeing because they faced death if they didn't. It's horrific, these amount to war crimes. What Vladimir Putin is doing is despicable, and the whole world, I think, has to continue to rally around the Ukrainian people and support their heroic fight. They, these are people, I was in Ukraine three weeks ago, and they told us then, if Vladimir Putin comes into Ukraine, if he thinks we're just gonna give in, he's got another thing coming. We're gonna fight for our country. We've tasted freedom. We are never going back to the Soviet Union, and we're prepared to die for our country. And although Americans aren't on the ground and fighting with them, we're supporting their fight in every way that we can, and I know that's a bipartisan position. We're going to continue to do that because they're fighting for freedom and democracy, and they're fighting for their own lives. Democratic Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island, thank you so much for joining us today. We Thanks. appreciate it, sir. As Russia advances in southern Ukraine, CNN 
goes into a town under direct attack, a town where a food warehouse was destroyed, where hospitals are packed, where small children are crying out for help. Plus, Vice President Kamala Harris on her way to Poland after a confusing and embarrassing public disagreement between the U.S. and a close NATO ally. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead and a look at the devastating human toll caused by Vladimir Putin's unprovoked war on the Ukrainian people. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh visited a hospital in the strategic port city of Mykolaiv, where after days of shelling, days of bombing, Ukrainian victims are coming to terms with the fact that despite their injuries, they are actually the lucky ones. This is probably when Russian forces tried to cut off Mykolaiv, pushing to its north to encircle it. Ukrainian shells here, not holding them back. The governor told locals to bring tyres to the streets, which they did fast. And in the dark, Russia's punishment of just about everyone here did not let up. An airstrike flattened this warehouse. And if you needed proof the Kremlin seeks to reduce all life here, 1,500 tonnes of onions, beer and pumpkins were an apparent target for a military jet. So were Zhenya and Ludmilla. In the back bedroom, when a missile hit, Zhenya built this home himself 43 years ago and knows he lacks the strength to do so again. Ludmilla says she doesn't even have her slippers now. The hospitals are steeped in pain, their corridors running underground. Svetlana lost three friends Tuesday when Russian shells hit the car they were travelling in to change shift at a disabled children's home. When she ducked, she saved her life. She names her three dead friends. Nikolai was badly burned by a missile in his yard. (laughs) Moscow targets hospitals, and so they perversely need their own bomb shelters, where sick children wait for the sirens to end. (laughs) Stas is 12 and alone. But he doesn't know the reason his father is not here just now, is because he is burying Stas, his mother and sister. Sonia has shrapnel in her head, causing her to spasm. Her mother explains they were outside taping up the house windows when the blast hit, while all the time trying to get Sonia to keep still. Mm-hmm. 
летит, ну, сзади ракета летит и видно. И тут, я говорю, Соня, уходим. Мы только отбегаем, Соня впереди меня. Я вижу, она летит, ну, шум, ну, здесь уже сумбурно все. Я только слышу взрывы. Солнышко, все тихо, все, я тихо, я тихо, 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 все говорю. Солнышко, чуть-чуть маленькое, терпи, 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 солнышко, все будет хорошо, все, все, все. Солнышко, солнышко, я рядом, миленькая. Солнышко, солнышко. Ты замерзла? Ты замерзла, девочка моя? Outside it is cold and loud. Now, the fight for Mikolaev appears to be continuing, Jake, the regional head just saying how he wouldn't go into details, but they are seeing attacks from the north uh, and the northeast. That seems to be the Russian move that we saw the day before, uh, sorry, yesterday, moving round to the north to try and kind of isolate the city. They have to get past it or encircle it in order to put pressure on here, the strategic goal of the third largest city, the port of Odessa. But as you can see there, the continued shelling, the frankly savage and often indiscriminate bombardment by Russian forces of civilian areas is leaving a heavy toll. Jake. Nick Payton Walsh in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Stay safe, my friend. An additional 18 cents a gallon. That's how much the federal gas tax is. Next, we're going to talk to a Democratic governor who's asking Congress to cut the tax for now. Stay with us. Moments ago, the plane-carrying Vice President Kamala Harris arrived in Warsaw, Poland. Any minute we expect to see her walk down those stairs. Her trip comes as the U.S. is shutting down a surprise offer. Poland had proposed using a U.S. airbase in Germany to move its Soviet-made MiG-29 fighter jets, which Ukrainians know how to fly, and deliver them to Ukraine to uphold a no-fly zone, which the Ukrainian government says its people desperately need. But, as CNN's MJ Lee reports for us now, the Polish proposal caught the Biden administration off guard at the same time the vice president is arriving to assure the security of NATO allies against Putin's aggression. Vice President Kamala Harris en route to Warsaw, Poland, as the U.S. continues its diplomatic push abroad to contain Russia's escalating attacks across Ukraine. Her trip complicated by a surprise announcement from the Polish government, a proposal to deploy Soviet-era fighter jets to a U.S. Air Force base in Germany, so that those in turn could be handed over to Ukraine by the American military. The U.S. dismissing that idea as untenable. Fighter jets manned by Americans departing a NATO base to fly into airspace contested with Russia raises serious concerns for the United States and NATO. Officials determined to avoid what the Kremlin might perceive as a direct U.S.-Russia confrontation. How do you get planes into Ukraine in a way that is not escalatory? And concerned about the logistical challenge of transporting the jets to Ukraine. I guess it's a temporary breakdown in in, in communication, but we have a strong and abiding relationship with Poland. The public disagreement coming as Ukrainian leaders are pleading with allies to supply them with fighter jets. We urge you, please make decisions faster. Do not shift responsibility. Send planes to us. We need planes. We need the jets. In Washington, the White House zeroing in on an urgent domestic concern, rising gas prices. We've already taken a number of steps and we will continue. On Wednesday, average gas prices hitting $4.25 per gallon. 
That sticker shock at the pump exacerbated by a new ban of Russian oil imports to the U.S. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill also moving forward with bipartisan legislation to block Russian energy imports. Republicans seizing on record-breaking gas prices as political ammunition. President Biden keeps breaking records. But unfortunately, those records are breaking America's budget. These aren't Putin prices. They're President Biden's prices. An economic data point that the White House is bracing for is the Consumer Price Index report that is coming out tomorrow. The White House saying that they do expect to see high headline inflation. One of the major reasons, of course, is energy prices. And the president himself and his aides have made clear the Russia import ban, uh, oil import ban that was announced yesterday, that is only expected to make things worse. But as we saw in that piece, Republicans are eager to tie uh, all of this to the president himself when we we certainly expect this to be an ongoing political dynamic as we get closer to the midterm elections, Jake. All right, MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Colorado Governor Jared Polis. He's one of six Democratic governors uh, from battleground states, one might observe, uh, including the leaders of Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, New Mexico, and Wisconsin, all of whom are calling on Congress to suspend the federal gas tax. Uh, Governor Polis, good to see you again. So it's about 18 cents tacked onto every gallon of gas for the gas tax, the federal gas tax. The national average for a gallon of gas today is $4.25. So taking off the tax would bring the price down to $4.07 a gallon. Would it take more than that to really relieve the financial stress that your constituents are feeling? Look, I know Coloradans and Americans are willing to do what we can to penalize uh, Putin's aggression. Um, Russia has really left the family of nations that engage in normal diplomacy and trade, and we simply can't allow this kind of behavior. And part of that response, Jake, uh, is to reduce markets for one of the major uh, sources of cash for Russia's war machine, which is oil and gas. And at the same time, we want to make sure that American consumers don't bear the brunt of that. We can take action right now, reduce the gas tax 18.6 cents per gallon. That'll provide some relief at the pump and make sure that we can continue to pressure Putin to end his invasion of Ukraine. In recent weeks, some Democratic senators have also floated suspending the gas tax. Is the momentum there? Do you think this could happen uh, in the near future? Yeah, and I want people to know a couple things. One is this would be a one-year suspension. We certainly hope it's not needed longer. It also would not reduce funding for roads and bridges funded from the gas tax. That would be backfilled with other resources. So it's important to look at that in the context of this. Uh, I think the American people want to see that, yes, we want to penalize Russian aggression. At the same time, we want to do what we can to minimize the pain at the pump for middle-class families. I mean, oil and gas companies are made record profits last year. You know, I, they don't have to do it. And certainly I, I don't think they will. But if they wanted to knock a buck or two a gallon off the price, they could. Well, look, it's a global commodity. Uh, we certainly have uh, get over 2,000 gas permits in Colorado that have already been granted that haven't been used yet. Production can go up. Keep in mind that that takes time, Jake, uh, for, for that to come into equilibrium. The other thing that we need to make sure we do is rapidly uh, move to renewable energy. Uh, it Not only are solar and wind energy lower cost, better for the environment, but we're now seeing with uh, several exclamation points the national security imperative of moving towards renewable energy. What about boosting U.S. oil production uh, to offset costs? The White House says that there are about 9,000 approved drilling permits not being used right now. Might those be worth the environmental risk? Shouldn't uh, those who have those permits go forward with them? 
You know, there's over 2,000 in Colorado that have been approved and haven't been used. It's really a matter of uh, when and how the industry chooses to invest and raise capital. Certainly, if oil prices are sustained at over $100 a barrel for a long period of time, it'll lead to increased uh, increased production. Uh, Part of the issue in America is we have, generally speaking, a higher cost of production than Saudi Arabia, than Venezuela, than Russia. So a lot of it comes into play when you're at $50, $60, $70 a gallon, a a barrel, uh, and it will help reduce uh, gas fees over time. But the immediate step, the only immediate step, frankly, because all of that takes months or years, is to uh, temporarily eliminate the federal gas tax of 18.5 cents per gallon. Even as you near the $4 mark, Colorado, we should note, has some of the lowest gas prices in the United States. California has the highest. They average more than $5.50 a gallon. California Governor Gavin Newsom proposed a possible tax rebate to help offset costs for Californians. Might you consider that for Colorado? So, yeah, thankfully, we're still around 380, 390. Uh, we're glad to be under the national level. We are trying to avoid right now a two cent fee per gallon fee on gas. We're also reducing vehicle registration fees by $11.50. Uh, and we've always been open to doing more. So, at the very least, let's see if we coupled with that 18 cent federal one, if we can reduce it by two cents in Colorado, that's 20 cents a gallon, and uh, reduce vehicle registration fees. Um, this is a, you know, this is a cost that everybody has. It's your commute to work. It's, it's going, taking your kids to school and back. Um, it, it's something that we want to make sure that we can reduce costs and save people money. Colorado Governor Jared Polis, thank you so much. Good to see you again, sir. Thank you. No more mask da- mandates in all 50 U.S. states, plus a COVID prediction from the CDC that you're going to want to hear. That's next. In our health lead, some good news to report on the COVID pandemic. Daily COVID cases in the U.S. have dropped 95% from the peak in mid-January, and COVID deaths are the lowest they've been in two months. Let's discuss with CNN medical analyst Dr. Jonathan Reiner. Dr. Reiner, thanks for being here. So Hawaii just announced it's dropping its mask mandate, becoming uh, the last state in the United States to do so. The CDC says 90% of people in the U.S. can take their masks off now. Um, Who should still be wearing a mask and where? I think a lot of people should be wearing masks in crowds. You know, I'll still wear a mask in, in uh, a crowd, and I'm not in a particularly high-risk high risk. Outdoors, group. too? Outdoors, less so. But if you're going to be in a crowded outdoor space, sure, you know, I would, I would leave a mask on. I don't think a mask is a, is a big burden. And when, when I wear a mask, I'm not just protecting myself. I'm protecting, you know, the person next to me who might really be vulnerable. And while you're right, that cases have dropped 95% over the last... Uh, two months. That's from an unbelievably high number of daily cases. So we've dropped from about a million reported cases, maybe uh, several fold higher than that, including the uh, home uh, self-test, down to a little less than 50,000 cases per day. 50,000 cases per day is still not uh, an insignificant amount. When we dropped masks last spring, right before Delta came, the U.S. was down to 7,000 cases per day. So we drop masks uh, right now at a time where we're not particularly low. We're much lower than we were, but there's still a significant amount of virus. And I think everyone has to judge their own risk and also gauge the risk of people around them and the people who they live with. The CDC officials also say it's increasingly likely COVID will never truly go away. It will simmer at lower levels in the summer, uh, rise in the winter. Is there anything that anybody watching should do? Uh, beyond what you said about uh, if you feel vulnerable, wear a mask indoors, especially in a crowd, and obviously getting vaccinated and getting boosted. Well, the last thing you said is the key, is getting vaccinated and getting uh, boosted. And while uh, our vaccines 
have been less effective uh, with Omicron in terms of preventing infection, they've still been incredibly effective against a serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And that's really what we, we're looking for. You know, when we get a flu shot, if you end up getting, you know, the sniffles for a few days and, you know, you're, you're home out of, out of work, you know, uh, for a couple of days, that's not a big deal if you're not hospitalized. And I think we're going to get to that point with Omicron where it's a seasonal virus. We probably have a seasonal booster the same way we have a seasonal vaccine for influenza. And we, we learn to live our, our lives in that way. But far, uh, there are not nearly enough people in this country who have been vaccinated. Uh, and if you look at the a percent of uh, this population that has been fully vaccinated, and by that I mean three doses, it's less than 30 percent. So Florida's Department of Health released new guidance Tuesday that said healthy children in Florida aged 5 to 17 do not need to get vaccinated. That's obviously not what the CDC says. What do you make of that? Uh, Florida has a disgraceful surgeon general. I, I think what is incredibly, what, what is, it's become abundantly clear is that children do get this virus. Most children, thankfully, will do fine with it. But uh, CDC says uh, we've lost about 1,400 kids uh, to, uh, to uh, the coronavirus, uh, and uh, thousands and thousands of children have been hospitalized. That can almost entirely be prevented uh, by vaccination. And even though there is some data that suggests that uh, children between 5 and 11 have had a bit uh, less of a benefit in terms of preventing infection uh, with this vaccine, the vaccine remains very, very effective at preventing those children from serious illness. Every child in this country should be vaccinated uh, for coronavirus. Uh, the Surgeon General has been anti-max. He's been a, the Surgeon General in Florida. Surgeon General in Florida, absolutely. Surgeon General Florida, he's been anti-max. He's been, he's been anti-vax. He's been associated with the discredited America, America's frontline uh, physicians. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's an embarrassment. All right, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, thank you so much. Appreciate it. As he defies the world and invades Ukraine... Vladimir Putin sits on the world's largest stockpile of nuclear weapons, even bigger than the U.S. is. We're going to take a look at Putin's arsenal next. Vladimir Putin repeatedly lied about his intentions to invade Ukraine. So should the rest of the world ever believe Putin? Especially when he's put his nuclear deterrence forces on high alert and warned the world about, quote, consequences never experienced before. CNN's Nina Dos Santos takes a closer look now at Putin's nuclear arsenal and the legitimate fear people have that he might actually use it. As Russia's tanks rolled into Ukraine, Vladimir Putin made a threat not heard since the height of the Cold War. Russia's response will be immediate and will lead you to such consequences never experienced in your history. Then, days later, he raised the alert level of the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Everyone knows that a third world war can only be nuclear. Only nine countries have nuclear weapons. The theory is that they are a preventative mechanism, hopefully never to be needed in battle. According to the Arms Control Association, Russia has the largest number of warheads at just over 6,000. While the U.S. isn't far behind, no other country, not even Israel or North Korea, has anywhere near this type of capability. Now, most of Russia's warheads are not currently on missile bases. Just over 1,400 of them are deployable at the moment. These find themselves on weapons like intercontinental ballistic missiles, submarine-launched missiles, and also on bombers. 
But would Russia's president really use them? Britain's defence secretary told the BBC he thinks Putin is bluffing. He reminded everyone he's got nuclear weapons, which, as you say, starts to set off people being worried. But secondly, he distracted from what's going wrong in Ukraine. This expert says the mere threat itself is designed to change the dynamics of the war. He's in a corner. Somebody in a corner in that situation does become more dangerous, is more prepared to take risks. Still, it's most unlikely. I don't want to alarm people unnecessarily. The probability of this happening is low, but it's not zero. The last time nuclear weapons were unleashed by the US in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, more than 100,000 died. At a UN disarmament conference, Japan expressed grave concern about Russia. As the only country to have suffered atomic bombings during war, Japan is fully aware of the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of the use of nuclear weapons. We stress once again that such tragedy must never be repeated again. While Russia says its nuclear intentions are purely defensive, that brings to mind its previous assurances that it had no intentions to invade Ukraine. It's in the minds of Western politicians that nuclear war is going on, not in the minds of Russians. Only President Putin knows how far he would really go. In the meantime, it's a gamble that the West can't afford to take. Nina Dos Santos, CNN, in London. Our thanks to Nina Dos Santos for that report. A city under fire, people crying as adults frantically look for a lost orphan as they try to evacuate one of the Ukrainian cities being targeted by Putin's barbaric war. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the Boy Scouts making headlines for all the wrong reasons. We have details of the first criminal charges filed in a years-long investigation of possible abuse involving thousands of survivors of child sexual abuse. Plus, more troops and more firepower were breaking down the Pentagon's new plans for U.S. forces in Europe with a former NATO Supreme Allied commander. And leading this hour, breaking news out of Ukraine. Her horrifying new video of Russia's latest attack, the government of Ukraine, says the Russians have hit a hospital full of innocent children and pregnant women. The latest, but by no means the only brutal act in Russia's unprovoked invasion. Today, thousands of civilians trying to take advantage of promised evacuation routes, as CNN's Matthew Chance reports. They're desperate to save their lives and those of their families. In the chaos of this evacuation, the frantic search for a lost child. In the rush to escape the fighting, an orphan has been left behind. Each bus now desperately checked for a familiar face. Hi. Hello. Hi. You speak English? For the journey across the front line, the children are well protected against the cold, if not the bombs. The older kids were terrified, like Kara, Natasha tells me. But the little ones didn't understand the danger they were all in, she says. This is a mass exodus from areas under heavy Russian assault. An agreed safe corridor, which hundreds of civilians, entire families, are using to escape before it closes, leaving the horrors of the past few weeks behind. 
Where, My where, name is Nadia. Nadia. Where have you come from, Nadia? From Vorzil. From Vorzil, which is a town up there. Yes. And this that... is a time. Uh, this is a place uh, which was uh, which was the very dangerous, and there are a lot of Russians and a lot of uh, Chechens. I don't know. Russians and Chechens. Yes, Russians and, and, and Chechens, and, and, and they kill our. Um, uh, owner. owner of the house where we uh, sit in. They killed the owner of the house? Yes, yes, they killed the owner of the house. And so you must have been, and your family over here, you yes. must have been terrified. Yeah, it, it Frightening. Was it, it, it was terrified, absolutely terrified. But family is okay. okay. Now we are going to the we're, we're 10 days in the underground. You've been 10 days underground? 10 days underground. Oh my goodness. Well, there you have it. Yeah, just, just, just one family that has you know, taken this opportunity to escape the horrific situation that they found themselves in for the last 10 days or more. And again, you know, take that chance to get themselves and their children out of here. We have a lot of volunteers who help with nutrition and yeah, warm. All these, all these sandwiches. And helping them do that safely. This embattled Ukrainian official tells me is now as much a part of fighting this war with Russia as killing the enemy. Yeah, and yeah, warm food and warm drinks. Yeah. We have uh, a medical crew that helps to, yeah. to manage people that were wounded. We've seen shelled people with broken and ruptured legs here. Yeah. Uh, and we have a security force that actually um, interview people because we are afraid that Russians may have sent some of their own right, in the, uh, as spies as uh, as saboteurs yeah. yeah right here and, and all this is happening of course all this is happening under the threat the threat of artillery strikes and gunfire sure. is, that's a real threat right now that's a real threat but we have no choice because we have thousands of people who really have spent more than a week in the basements with no cellular cellular coverage yeah. with no access to medical assistance with no food, no light, no electricity, and they want to flee. They need us to help them. But as the buses leave for the capital, the boom of artillery fire resumes in the distance. And the window for this escape from the fighting is closing fast. Well, Jake, it's past midnight here now. And of course, that window has fully closed in the sense that those humanitarian corridors have no, are now no longer in operation. There's no suggestion at the moment. And it's past midnight here, as I say, that there's going to be another opportunity for these people, the thousands of people still left in the areas that are controlled by Russia and where there is still fierce fighting, whether they are going to get another opportunity to escape uh, that violence. What I will say, though, is that there are negotiations taking place tomorrow in Turkey at the highest level that have taken place since the beginning of this war with the foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine meeting in the city of Antalya in Turkey to try and hammer out to see if there's any kind of common ground between these two countries. Matthew, right before we came to you today, you heard air raid sirens and then a roaring sound behind you. Do do you know what happened? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, it was like air raid such sirens of the kind that we hear sort of regularly here in central Kiev. They're, they're often not followed by anything at all. But this time, uh, a few minutes later, there was a roar through the sky, which made us all step back from this open window here. I don't quite know what it was. Um, it could have been jets. It could have been a missile. It could have been 
um, Ukrainian anti-aircraft defences firing at something in the sky. But we're going to try and get some clarification on that and come back to you as soon as we can. All right, Matthew Chance reporting live from Kiev. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. Joining us now to discuss... Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California is the chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. Does the U.S. know for sure that Russia is responsible for this horrific attack on that hospital, that maternity and children's hospital in Mariupol? Um, Jake, I haven't gotten a report yet uh, from the intelligence community about it. Uh, I'm getting briefed uh, generally multiple times a day. But I don't have fidelity on that. Uh, of course, the Russians are increasingly indiscriminate in their bombing. Uh, it is, as sadly uh, we anticipated, uh, the stiff resistance the Russians are meeting uh, is causing Putin to simply double down uh, and try to inflict as much pain as possible. Uh, so uh, uh, I don't have confirmation, but uh, it's certainly tragically consistent with what we're seeing of uh, how the Russians are broadening this conflict and uh, just trying to inflict uh, maximum pain uh, on the people of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it certainly wouldn't be out of character. They've already bombed several hospitals in Ukraine, and, and they did so to a devastating effect in, in Syria over the past decade. Um, just moments ago, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki tweeted, quote, we should all be on the lookout for Russia to possibly use chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine or to create a false flag operation using them, un- unquote. Do, do you expect that to happen? Uh, You know, this is uh, sadly one of the false flag operations that uh, we anticipate the Russians may deploy. Um, This is part of their trade craft. uh, And, you know, sadly, we've seen uh, similar things in the past. Uh, So I am deeply concerned about it. Uh, And, of course, depending on how the Russians go about it, uh, if they were to use chemical or biological uh, agents as a pretext uh, of course, um, that would be a, another terrible escalation, uh, and who knows where that could lead. You mentioned yesterday what you're hearing from some of your constituents about Ukraine. I want to play that sound. I also think, and, and this is what I hear from my constituents, and I know on a bipartisan basis, it's what my colleagues on both sides of the aisle are hearing, that is they want us to do more. The House is expected to vote this week on a massive spending bill that would include nearly $14 billion in additional assistance for, you, from you, for Ukraine. What else uh, can the administration do to help save Ukraine from this murderous thug, uh, Vladimir Putin, while also not risking causing World War III? Well, you know, that's exactly the line that we have to walk. We want to make sure that we don't get into shooting war ourselves with the Russians But I I think there's still a lot more that we can do uh, to continue to ratchet up sanctions on Russia and make the Russian people see the folly of their murderous uh, and despotic uh, ruler. Uh, But also uh, there's further military support we can provide Ukraine to help Ukraine with its air defense. I think that's a particularly high priority for Ukraine uh, to make sure that uh, they have the ability to take out some of the Russian aircraft that are engaging in discriminate bombing, uh, but also... Uh, to take out uh, Russian uh, tanks and other military vehicles. Uh, and, and so uh, we're doing our best to provide that kind of support uh, at the same time, avoiding any, any red lines. Well, there was this plan floated by Poland to have uh, their Soviet-made planes, uh, MiG-29s, go to Ramstein Air Force Base, and then the U.S. would get the planes to Ukraine so they could 
defend their own skies, uh, do their own no-fly zone, uh, but the Pentagon shot that down. Well, as I understand it, what the Pentagon rejected was flying those planes from, from an American base in Germany. And I understand the concern they have about the, the potential escalation. Uh, there should be another way to get those planes to Ukraine. Uh, I would certainly support our doing that um, and having Ukrainian pilots uh, leave Ukraine to uh, take possession of those aircraft and, and fly them into Ukraine. Um, I also want to make sure that we get Ukraine some of the missiles they need uh, so that they can shoot down Russian aircraft uh, from the ground. Uh, that, to me, is a, uh, an urgent priority, uh, and I hope that we are, um, and I know we're working with our NATO and other allies to try to make that happen. It appears that the U.S. and the West have drawn a line, and the line is NATO countries. We're not going to come to the defense uh, with our own troops or service members, Uh in Ukraine, they're not a member of NATO, but NATO countries, uh, th- that's where we draw the line. Your congressman, um, Congressman Mike, uh, your colleague, Congressman Mike Quigley of Illinois, spoke to CNN earlier today. I want to I play some of what he said. Can we stop talking about Ukraine uh, as not being a member of NATO? The Ukrainian fight and the Ukrainian spirit are the very reasons embodied in why we formed NATO in the first place. We have to protect them. We have to protect the skies. I know what that means. And we don't do things like this rashly. But, but if we're balancing things, what needs to be on the other side of the scale for us to act? Do you disagree with him? Uh, look, I understand how he feels. Um, he represents a, a large uh, Ukrainian diaspora. I do, too. Uh, that I met with recently in Los Angeles. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. And our constituents want us to do more. At the same time, uh, our constituents don't want us going to war with Russia. Uh, and so uh, I think we have to continue to walk that line, make sure that we're providing Ukraine with all the support we can, make sure that we're turning up the pain on Russia. I'm very proud to see Americans in overwhelming numbers uh, support a ban on Russian oil and gas, even though that's going to mean more pain at the pump. Um, but, uh, but I don't think we can uh, go to war with Russia or should go to war with Russia. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, thank you so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. They may not have much, but they have kindness. We're going to visit people in Europe's poorest country, opening their homes to Ukrainian refugees. That's next. A sobering number topping our world lead this hour. More than 2.1 million refugees, 2.1 million have now fled Ukraine. The U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees called that a terrifying number. And we can only expect it to go up as the reality in Ukraine grows even more dire. Nearly 300,000 people have crossed into neighboring Moldova in the last two weeks. As CNN's Ivan Watson reports, regular people in a Moldovan border village are stepping up to help. On the day Russia first attacked Ukraine, residents of this sleepy village in Moldova heard explosions. You can hear sometimes the the explosions from from Ukraine. It's terrifying. It's not just the sounds of war that are coming across the border. Refugees of the conflict have come here too. Some Moldovan villagers have opened their doors to their Ukrainian neighbors in their time of need. People like Boris Mikheyev. This 75-year-old widower welcomed Olga Kuznetsova, her mother and two children, into his home after they fled across the border last week. 
I feel badly for them, he says. The children are small. This little one is innocent. Boris holds two-year-old Andrei as if he was his own grandson. These Ukrainians have never been to Moldova before, but they fled after spending days and nights hiding from Russian airstrikes in the basement of their home. The family left on very short notice after hearing warplanes through the night. They packed two suitcases and left with five minutes notice. With no advanced planning, the women rely entirely on the generosity of Moldovans for food, shelter and clothing, including for eight-year-old Vera. Vera says there are very kind people here in Moldova. What made you want to help? I don't know how to act differently, you know. Rusanda Kurka has been helping find homes in the village for a few dozen of the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians that have fled to Moldova in the last two weeks. So because it's normally to help people in need. Some people are hosting refugees, others are donating products, stuffs, things, and others are just praying for, for peace. Down the road from Boris's house, we meet Valentina Cherney. She took in her Ukrainian sister-in-law Olga and family, including 29-year-old Natalia, who is seven months pregnant. We have to stop Vladimir Putin, Olga tells me, or else he'll just keep going, invading countries like Moldova and Poland. As she speaks, Olga's 14-year-old daughter fights to hold back tears. The Moldovan government says tens of thousands of refugees are living in the homes of ordinary Moldovans, an extraordinary act of collective kindness from one of the poorest countries in Europe. Asked how long he could afford to continue hosting this Ukrainian family, Boris Makayev told me they can stay as long as they need. Jake, there are so many Ukrainian refugee children here that a government official tells me they're starting to look at trying to integrate them into the country's educational system. The kids that I met today, I asked about their studies, and surprisingly, they're continuing to do homework and school assignments uh, at a distance, distance learning, uh, a continuation of a practice that began under the COVID pandemic. Now that they're refugees across borders, they continue to study with their teachers via the internet who are still in Ukraine. Jake? Incredible. Ivan Watson reporting live for us from Moldova. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Our next guest recently said Vladimir Putin may be the best thing that ever happened to NATO. We're going to ask him if he still feels that way. Stay with us. video shows an airstrike on the town of Zutomir in central UK and the city's mayor says this strike appeared to hit a power plant as well as a civilian building. It followed another round of strikes targeting the area last night as part of the brutal Russian bombardment of Ukraine. Today Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. does not support the transfer of fighter jets to Ukraine, even those belonging to Poland. This comes after Poland proposed sending MiG-29s to a U.S. air base in Germany, then to go to Ukraine. CNN's Barbara Stark joins us now live from the Pentagon. Barbara, what exactly did Kirby say? 
Well, Jake, he laid out a number of reasons why the U.S. is not supporting this proposal. And one of them is the view that perhaps in the U.S. view that Ukraine doesn't need them, that they have a number of aircraft. They may not be flying as much as they could because of the Russian missile situation in the air, that threat. They have squadrons. Uh, and, And he laid out a number of reasons. Have a listen to a bit more of what he had to say. But he stressed that we do not support the transfer of additional fighter aircraft to the Ukrainian Air Force at this time and therefore have no desire to see them in our custody either. The transfer of MiG-29s to Ukraine may be mistaken as escalatory and could result in a significant Russian reaction that might increase the prospects of a military escalation with NATO. Therefore, we also assess the transfer of the MiG-29s to Ukraine to be high risk. Very carefully chosen words there. As you can see, a message to Moscow, we're not getting involved in the war from here in the United States from a U.S. base in Germany. But in addition, Kirby went on to say the U.S. talking to a number of allies and partners about additional air defense weapons to Ukraine. Uh, things like Stinger missiles, like surface-to-air missile systems, believing the Ukrainians can make more use of that than additional fighter jets. And Barbara, you're also learning the Pentagon is beefing up its military infrastructure in Europe and NATO countries. How many troops are we talking about and where? Well, uh, we've already seen 500 additional troops go this week. Two Patriot missile batteries now in Poland on NATO's eastern flank. All of this part of an effort to erect essentially a wall of deterrence on NATO's flank, sending a message to Russia, don't make any mistakes, don't come across into NATO. We have deterrence and we will use it. They hope, of course, not to. All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon, thanks so much. Here to discuss, Admiral James Stavridis. He's a former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. He's also author of 2034, a novel of the next world war. Admiral, good to see you again. Let's start with that announcement from the Pentagon. Kirby, the uh, spokesman for the Pentagon, saying the U.S., will not support the transfer of fighter jets to Ukraine at this time, even if they're Polish fighter jets. What what do you make of that? I can understand the reticence uh, about doing so. It's complicated. There are logistic challenges. And as John Kirby, our mutual friend, said, um, it is escalatory. Jake, on the other hand, my own view is that I think it's time to take some additional risk here And this is less risk than having U.S. jets flying over Poland, creating a no-fly zone. Um, This is something we could, in my view, continue to think about doing if we can overcome these logistic challenges. Again, it's about risk calculus. Um, When I hear John say um, at this time, I'm not sure what else Putin would do that would cause us to uh, to take this step. So I hope we continue to examine this. I thought it was a creative idea. Poland's initial proposal was to transfer the fighter jets to Ramstein Air Base. That's a U.S. base in Germany. So then the U.S. would transfer the, these Polish um, Soviet-made MiGs to Ukraine. Why would that not work for NATO? Uh, I, I know that's not your position, but, but, but logistically, what's the issue there? I think the concern would be that these would be, at that point, NATO jets, and it was unclear whether the intent was to have them operate from Rammstein, the NATO base in Germany, or to get them into Ukraine. Um, I, for one, would not support having them operate out of Germany. I think that does put us into the conflict. But logistically, if you could get those jets into Western Ukraine, support them out of a place like Lviv, Uh, get them in the air, I think they could have impact. Why can't Poland just transfer them 
themselves. They're right on the border with Ukraine. It's a very good question. I think the answer is the polls are concerned about risk, concerned about uh, Russia identifying them individually as stepping into the war as a combatant. If I were the leader of Poland, I'd be concerned about that too. What Poland is trying to do logically enough is to get the whole alliance behind the idea. So far, it's hit some roadblocks. Let's give it some time. In the meantime, Jake, as Barbara reported, I think more fruitful and more immediate would be to get additional anti-air weapon systems uh, above and beyond, quite literally, the altitude stingers can play at. There are other systems that are available. Let's get them in there as a starting point. Let's continue to look at the idea of getting these jets there over time. That would be my prescription. There have been proxy wars between the U.S. and and Russia before. I'm thinking right now of Syria um, and the U.S. and Russia would coordinate so as to not directly attack each other with these deconfliction lines that they had. But it, it is true that the U.S. killed some Russian mercenaries, I think, in Syria. Why is this different? Um, I think that this is different because it would be um, potentially, uh, if you mean the idea of a no-fly zone with U.S. pilots, it would put U.S. and Russians nose-to-nose in potential combat situations. If you mean the Polish yeah, jet, I, I mean the Polish I don't bar. think, yeah, in that sense, I agree with you. I don't think this buys much more risk than that. That's why I advocate continuing to look at it. You said Russian President Putin, uh, quote, may be the best thing that ever happened uh, to NATO. Uh, I assume you mean because it's brought the alliance together, given it a sense of mission. Uh, Do you still feel that way? I do very much so. And I think the, the Polish jet issue is something the alliance can continue to look at. But step back from that for a moment and look at the the unanimity of response to this And in particular, Jake, um, I recall in my four years as Supreme Allied Commander, every NATO conference, every NATO gathering, every NATO summit, I would move like a B directly at Chancellor Angela Merkel or then Minister of Defense Ursula von der Leyen and try and encourage them to increase their defense spending. Um, I got nowhere in four years. Vladimir Putin in two weeks has gotten the Germans to hit the 2% goal and to add 100 billion euros to their budget this year. By the way, the Russian defense budget, $70 billion. Uh, The Germans are adding well above that this year in defense spending. That's the kind of response that Putin is eliciting from the alliance. You were NATO's Supreme Allied Commander from 2009 to 2013. So right after the Russians invaded Georgia and right before the Russians invaded Crimea. Uh, What do you wish NATO countries, the U.S., had done during that period uh, that might have kept Putin from doing what he's doing today, doing what he did in Crimea the year after you left? Uh, Well, first, I'll have to observe, um, as you correctly say, he invaded right before I got there and then he invaded right after I left. So maybe the solution is putting an admiral in charge of, uh, <laughs> of NATO command. Actually, I think that had little to do with it. Um, I think what NATO um, has could have done in that period um, would have been to, to bind itself even more tightly with some of these partner nations. Um, famously, we work very closely, for example, with Finland and Poland, not NATO members. They deployed with us to Afghanistan. So did the Ukrainians. I think we could have increased our level of training with them, um, integrated them 
more fully as a NATO partner. Perhaps that might have deterred Putin. But, you know, Jake, as I watch Putin over the last uh, few weeks, the last few months, really the last few years, he is seized with this idea of rebuilding the USSR. It's not clear anything we could have done would have prevented what is occurring now. Rebuilding the USSR by bombing maternity hospitals. Uh, Admiral James uh, Stavridis, thank you so much. Good to see you again. A barrage of interviews to secure the job of a lifetime. What Republican senators are saying after meeting Judge Jackson, Biden's pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. Stay with us. And our politics lead today on Capitol Hill, Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson was peppered with questions behind closed doors from conservative Republican senators such as Mike Lee and Josh Hawley. Lee told reporters that he will continue a, quote, thorough review ahead of her confirmation hearing at the end of the month. Hawley called their meeting substantive, while moderate Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine struck a more positive tone, calling her huddle yesterday with Judge Jackson, quote, productive saying that the judge's credentials were, quote, impressive. But Collins emphasized that she has not yet made a decision. She is one of three Republicans to have voted to confirm Jackson to her current role on the D.C. federal appeals court. Our panel joins us now. So, Tia, everyone wants to know how moderate Republicans like Susan Collins will vote on Jackson's nomination, especially fellow Democratic senators like uh, Mark Warner, who reposted this photo him of him questioning Collins, posing as a Capitol Hill reporter. Um, But do you expect any early uh, yes commitments from any Republicans ahead of the hearing? I don't expect them to play their hands that early. Perhaps after the hearings next week that you'll have some that start coming around. But I think, you know, they don't want to commit themselves because there will be four days of more public vetting of Judge Jackson. And I think none of them want to get out there and then something perhaps come out or happen during the hearing. So I would expect after next week, you'll start seeing people saying where they land on her nomination. And Casey, uh, the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee, uh, Chuck Grassley of Iowa, he thinks the timeline for this nomination process is rushed and, quote, arbitrary. Uh, Dick Durbin's office, the Democratic uh, uh, whip, um, he points out Republicans only waited 16 days after announcing Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to start confirmation hearings. This will be 24 days. Despite the hypocrisy, do you think um, they're going to use this uh, rush timeline argument, the Republicans? I've been around this town long enough, Jake, as have you, to know that those charges of hypocrisy don't seem to matter to either side in any circumstance (laughs) like this. It's pretty shameless, uh, especially... I mean, frankly, Republicans in particular, um, Alice, I apologize. But, you know, when you look at what Mitch McConnell will, the way he will twist the arguments uh, on their head sometimes, I mean, there are people in this town that admire that, but it is it is really something to see. And he rushed Amy Coney Barrett through. If this timeline is arbitrary, I don't see how that, that one wasn't. Look, th- this is a big deal. This is a lifetime appointment. This is a, one of the most important factors for a lot of people's vote, mine specifically when it came to my vote in the last two elections, because it is a lifetime appointment. It's important and it's imperative that we slow down, let the senators uh, engage in their advise and consent process to, for this nomination. And look, you know, yes, there is a bit of hypocrisy, but if you look at the actual numbers, the average timeline for a confirmation is around 53 days. Amy Coney Barrett in total was 30 days, and the Democrat schedule uh, in this case for Judge Jackson is around 24. So this is a much shorter timeline. It is arbitrary, but the most important thing here is to have a thorough and an accurate vetting process because this is such an important decision. Do you think they're going to get any Republican votes? 
Um, I don't know. I've kind of given up on predicting what Republicans will do. But I, I, I think that this is, um, I mean, we're talking about a few days between what you just said. So it's not really that. 24 that, and 30. That there's right. not th- that big of a difference. And I agree it is a very important, uh, very important position in, in this country. Um, Judge Jackson, though, of course, was just before the committee last for, summer yeah a year ago so where amy coney barrett it had been about three years um and so this isn't like a new person that they're not familiar with so i think that um you know she's eminently qualified and uh unless something comes up that we don't know about there's really no reason that she shouldn't be confirmed um there's really no reason to wait i don't really know what would happen um, if you added a few more days to it. So it is the midterms. Uh, let's turn to uh, an election in North Carolina. Former President Trump's endorsed candidate for North Carolina's Senate seat, um, the retiring uh, Senator, Mr. Burr, is leaving the seat open. And, and Trump's pick, Ted Budd, is slipping behind his opponents in internal polling and in fundraising, according to Politico. One of Budd's opponents, uh, Republican former North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory, released this attack ad today. Take a look. While Ukrainians bled and died. He's a very intelligent actor. Congressman Budd excused their killer. There are strategic reasons why he would want to protect his uh, southern and western flank. We understand that. Budd's votes have been friendly toward Russia. He voted against sanctions on Russia. I'm Pat McCrory. I don't compliment our enemies. I stand for truth and freedom. It's very interesting, the subtext there also, because uh, in addition... I mean, it's not just Ted Budd who's complimented our, our enemies. Yes. Uh, Donald Trump did. He, he said that uh, Putin was a genius. I should point out uh, that, that, Pud, uh, that Budd uh, noted that in other parts of that same interview, he called Putin evil and a thug. What do you make of this, the politics of a Republican attacking a Republican for being soft on Putin? Well, this is obviously what we're going to see in a Republican primary. This is going to be a big, big race. We're going to see a lot of money in this. This ad uh, accusing him of being a Putin apologist is just the first of many. Uh, On the flip side, uh, Bud, who has the support of the Club for Growth, having been on the receiving end of the Club for Growth attack ads, that's going to be brutal. And they are uh, putting big money into going against McCrory already $4 $4 million. They have $10 million in the bank to go after him. And while right now out of the gate, we have one Republican calling another one a Putin apologist. By the time the club for growth is done, McCrory is going to look like a liberal grim reaper. So, so this you, is going to be a tough race. Making McCrory liberal is going to be an interesting <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> he's, not, he's not particularly liberal. Uh, but, you know, I do think it's interesting because you obviously do have this um, you know, pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party uh, these days. And, and uh, I mean, you heard some of that echoed in, in Bud's comments, but but also uh, it's, it's kind of uh, surprising to see a Republican, given, you know, where the party has seemed to have been in the last month or so. Well, I think we're learning a little bit about just how big that quote-unquote pro-Putin wing is, because certainly those voices have been the loudest, especially under Donald Trump, and some of the loudest anti-Putin voices in the Republican Party have been quieter, frankly, over the last uh, five years uh, because of the effect that Donald Trump has had on the party. But I think you've seen some people kind of pulling back on that a little bit. I think this is really, it's being exposed for what it is, which is a, a button that's being pushed that has echoes of white nationalism, the way that uh, Putin has run Russia and become kind of a hero to, to white Christians. Uh, you're, that is extremely unsavory. And it goes against, you know, being pro-Putin, pro-Russia goes against 
everything that the Republican Party stood for for three decades before that. So, you know, I, I do think that this ad is extremely interesting for that reason, and it's going to be a real test. That's I mean, I, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I mean, the, we've, we've heard those voices in prominent positions in conservative media and, yeah. and on yeah. Capitol Hill. I mean, I think it shows the limitations of like Republicans want to be in lockstep with former President Trump. But on this issue of being, you know, if not necessarily pro-Putin saying nice things about him, we know that doesn't sell well with regular people. And so they're pivoting, not not necessarily because of Trump, but in spite of Trump, because they know that the public sentiment is, you know, anti-Putin stands, you know, firmly against him right now. And so that's why I think you're seeing the shift. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just look at polling, it, even Republicans overwhelmingly, if they have to pick sides between Putin and Ukraine, they're picking Ukraine. They see what's going on. They're, they're looking at the television. It's not just a theoretical thing now. It's a real thing. And so I don't think Republicans can win on that message, actually. I think it's a, it's a, it is a real problem for them to be pro-Putin. I, I just don't think it's going to sell. Now, look, we've seen Fox News and Trump poll voters in a certain way. Um, But it doesn't seem so far that it's working. All right. Thanks, one and all. Great panel. Really appreciate it. Coming up, criminal charges have been filed against a one-time Boy Scout leader. Details on the sex abuse investigation. That's next. In our national lead, Michigan's attorney general today announced the first criminal charges in the state's ongoing investigation of sexual abuse within the Boy Scouts. Michigan officials say they are going through thousands of claims. Let's go to CNN's Alexandra Field. Alexandra, this is a horrifying story, and this particular case involves a man who's already in jail for similar crimes in New York. Uh, That's right, Jake. We're talking about Mark Chapman, a former Michigan scoutmaster who has been serving time on child abuse convictions in New York. He was set to be released this week. Instead, he's now facing a slew of criminal sexual conduct charges from Michigan authorities who say that for years he abused two young boys, one just 13 or 14, according to investigators, at the time the abuse started. The other was 11 years old. Mark Chapman is uh, alleged to have abused children for years. He threatened them with violence when they refused to participate or tried to stop him from continuing his assaults. And he is the source of their pain, their psychological scars, and their mental anguish. The investigation into Chapman followed a tip that was called into a hotline set up by the state, which last year announced an investigation of allegations of widespread sexual abuse connected to the Boy Scouts of America. Overall, the Michigan Attorney General's office now believes there are as many as 5,000 victims in the state with allegations of abuse tied to the scouts. Nationwide, around 90,000 claims of sexual abuse have been made by former scouts. The Boy Scouts of America filed for bankruptcy back in 2020, facing hundreds of sex abuse lawsuits at that time, Jake. Just horrifying. Alex, what about uh, the proposed nationwide settlement involving the Boy Scouts and those tens of thousands of victims? Yeah. So a confirmation hearing is set to start on Monday. It could last several weeks. And this is for a revised restructuring plan for the Scouts of America, which would include a historic $2.7 billion compensation fund for survivors of sex abuse. All right. Alexander Field, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Horrible story. An underwater mystery has been solved 107 years later. That's next. We have a a real tale for you in our buried lead, a discovery literally buried, nearly 10,000 feet underwater. The shipwreck 
of the HMS Endurance has been found 107 years after it sank to the bottom of the sea, about 100 miles off the coast of Antarctica. Polar explorer Ernest Shackleton and his crew of 27 men abandoned the HMS Endurance during their 1914 expedition to the South Pole after the ship became encased in ice and sank in some of the coldest water on the planet. Shackleton's crew camped on the drifting ice for more than five months before eventually making it to the deserted Elephant Island. Then Shackleton and part of the crew volunteered to cross 800 miles of some of the most dangerous waters in the world in an open rowboat. Eventually, they landed on South Georgia Island. They then had to hike across mountains to reach civilization. More than 21 months after the Endurance first set sail, a team was sent to save the remaining crew on the deserted island. This was August 1916. Amazingly, everyone on Shackleton's crew survived. And so did, apparently, the HMS Endurance. Researchers from Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust and History Hit, who discovered Endurance using underwater search vehicles, say that the 144-foot wooden ship is almost completely intact. And it's in excellent condition because the water is so cold. And that helped preserve it. The HMS Endurance will not be moved. It will not be taken apart. It will remain at the bottom of the ocean where it will be photographed and mapped for research purposes. Before we go, we know it can be incredibly difficult to see the devastation in Ukraine, the powerful images, and of course the humanitarian crisis happening on the ground. There are ways that you can help. Head to CNN.com impact. You can find a long list of options to offer your support if you can afford to contribute. Again, that's cnn.com slash impact. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. We actually read them. And if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead. All two hours of it, wherever you get your podcast. It's all sitting right there. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.